right, all right. Hey, uh, Nehemiah chapter 7 is where we are in our study. We have been working our way through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They are originally actually combined into one book. And so we've been following the storyline. It's really a fantastic uh, storyline of God restoring his people. And so we've entitled the series, the series Church Building, God's Plan for the Future. And what's happening in the, in the history, in Israel's history, is that uh, they had so turned their hearts away from the Lord many years prior to the events here. It got so bad that they were, they were basically undistinguishable as the people of God. Okay, their hearts were so cold towards the Lord. They were so entrenched in everything other than the Lord. They were unrecognizable as the people of God. And at, at a, almost a final stage, God said, I'm going to send you into exile. And you're going to spend a season, 70 years, in exile. You, you, okay, no more identity. No more identity as the people of God. No more city for you. No more temple for you. You're just going to, in a sense, you're going to get what your hearts have been saying you want. No God in your life. You act like you don't want to be the people of God. And so here you go. Try that on for size. And they spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. That converted over to Persia. What's happening in these two books of the Bible is that God's Spirit begins to work in a miraculous way of actually drawing them back, which was something that was promised even before they were sent into exile. I'm going to send you away, and I'm going to draw you back. You're going to go away for 70 years, and you're going to learn. And so now they're getting reestablished, and so the series of events, a team comes back to Jerusalem. They build the temple Fantastic. They begin to worship again. People begin to congregate. And then we get into the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's sole calling is to rebuild the walls around the city. That's his construction project. That's his major project, his undertaking. And those walls around that city are significant for the identity of the people of God. And we'll talk more about that in just a couple minutes. Now, in chapter 7... A transition takes place. Okay, we sort of wrap up the project of building the wall, and we'll read the first few verses where it says the wall is complete. And from there, the spotlight shifts and changes, and we move from building structures and building walls, and Nehemiah begins to zero in on the people of God. And we've been saying this over and over throughout this series. Like, yes, yes God is restoring a city. Yes, he's restoring a physical temple. Yes, he's having walls built around the city. But the real objective, what it's really all about, what those structures and walls are really all about, is building the people of God. Tim's going to pick it up next week and lead us into that section where the focus is no longer going to be on stones and bricks and building. It's going to be on the heart, the people of God, and developing them and maturing them and growing them. But before we go there, there's something in the first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 7 that I really believe is, is an important message that we need to learn. It's very applicable to our lives as Christians. So let's, let's read it together. Just the first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 7. 
Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. Here's the essence of the message that I believe is in these four verses for them, for us, from the Lord, is to guard what God has given. Guard what God has given. We just read in a statement a major milestone of Israelite history. This was a significant undertaking. And as I gave you the overview of the story, they are being reconvened as the people of God. The city is now taking shape for those walls to be completed. The city of God is again in place. The people of God are there. This is a significant moment in their history. Task completed. Nehemiah can check his to-do list. The wall is finished. The doors are hung. But before we move on, he gives us instruction. You have to protect what God has given. You have to maintain what God has given. You have to be careful and watchful about what God has given. What God accomplishes, we must maintain and guard. When God grants us Events significant moving forward in his kingdom, he calls us to maintain it and keep it with all diligence. So we'll break down the message with three simple points. First, know what God accomplishes. Secondly, maintain what God accomplishes. And third, guard, guard what God accomplishes. First, know what God has given, okay? Major milestone, major accomplishment. Now let's think about this. The focus, especially in chapter 6, has been on Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah is shining through like a hero here. He's the man. He's an extraordinary man. In fact, many, many Christians go to this book for lessons in leadership. Nehemiah is the guy. He knows how to run things. He's remarkable in, in many ways. And he does it. He was successful in completing it. And we, we start off, now when the wall had been built and I'd set up, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, everything was in place. That's so significant. That was a major milestone. Those walls represented something about the identity of the people of God and their security as the people of God. So those walls represented Isaiah 26, 1 and 2. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. The walls said to the world, 
This is where the people of God gather and worship. This is where God dwells with man. This is where we are who we are in the Lord. This is where we are. This is where we're held secure in God's hands. We are the people of God. And Nehemiah did it. Or did he? Or did he? There's a, th a theology throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it makes this point that everything is, that it was the Lord at work before and behind everything that was taking place. Could we just do a little Bible study together? Here's a little Sunday school lesson on how to get the most out of reading your Bible. Okay, when you read your Bible and you want to study your Bible and some of you are great at it and very insightful and others struggle. You know, the key is really asking good questions. You know, read your Bible and ask good questions. And here's the, the, the primary, the here's the best question, the first question that you should ask when you read any portion of the Bible. What does this tell me about God? Start with that question. I know we like to open up our Bible and say, God, what are you going to say to me? We need a Hallmark card for the morning. We need something. We need some inspiration. We're looking for something. Just, just pause that. Stop. Open your Bible. Read and ask this question. What does this verse, paragraph, chapter, book, section of the Bible, what does it tell me about God? The theology of Ezra and Nehemiah comes shouting out in the first verse. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Okay, so human achievement, human achievement throughout each time the scripture steps in, it says, okay, before you settle in on that thought about how great Cyrus is, know this, it was the Lord that put it on his heart. And the reason the Lord put it on his heart is because the Lord had already spoken about what he was going to do with the people of God. Now you see the hand of a sovereign God behind and before every human activity taking place. Could I just walk you through? Let's do a little Bible study together. Okay, I just went through and I just marked up my Bible. Let's find all the references throughout these two books, okay? Ezra 1 verse 2, Cyrus speaking, the Lord has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and the Lord has charged me with this mission. Ezra 5 1, when they stopped working, it was the word of the Lord that came through Haggai and Zechariah that got them working again. Ezra 5, 5, when the workers were being interrogated and intimidated, it was the eye of the Lord was on the elders of the Jews so that they did not stop the work. 6, 14, they finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. 6, 22, they kept the feast with joy. Why? For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king toward them. Are you picking up the theme? The writers are wanting to make it absolutely clear. Chapter 7, verse 6, Ezra is introduced as someone who the hand of the Lord of his God was upon him. 7, 9, the good hand of his God was on him. 7, 25, judges were appointed according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand. 7, 27, okay, so this is how you read your Bible. You get your highlighter out, you get your pencil out, and you say, where? Where does this book tell me? You read verse 1. 
Verse 1 is telling me God's behind it all. Go through the entire books and start marking off. What references can you find where God is declaring himself before and behind every event? 727, blessed be the Lord who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord. I took courage for the hand of the Lord God was on me. 818, when there were not enough priests, a man came by the good hand of our God. 822, when Ezra was embarrassed to ask the king for an escort because he bragged so much about the hand of the Lord being upon them, so instead he prayed and the Lord heard and granted them a safe journey. Nehemiah 2.12, when Nehemiah was secretly inspecting the walls, he told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. God at work, before, behind, underneath. Before any human agency is activated here, the God of heaven will make us prosper, 2, verse 20. Nehemiah 5.15, I did not lay a heavy tax burden on the people because of the fear of the Lord. Again, note human activity that finds its source in something that God has done before and behind. I didn't lay the financial burden on the people. Why? Because of the fear of the Lord. God at work in his heart. Chapter 6, verse 9, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. Chapter 6, verse 16, the work was accomplished with the help of our God. So what is the theology of Ezra and Nehemiah? Okay, what do you think about God now? So what theology is, what do you think about God? How do you think about God? What do, you, what do you believe to be true about God? When God's plan to redeem moves forward, it's because the good hand of the sovereign Lord has already accomplished something that is at work before and behind it all. Okay, let me ask you a personal question. Why are you here? I mean, really, why are you here? How, how did this come about that you would be here worshiping with us this afternoon? There's certainly some human activity in you being here. If you're here and you're a Christian, there's certainly some human activity that took place in order for you to be here and to be in Christ. You went somewhere. You listened to someone. You responded with faith. You prayed. You asked the Lord to forgive you. You looked to Christ to save you. You repented from your sin. The Bible teaches us both about God's sovereignty as well as human activity and responsibility. The Bible teaches both, so we teach both, and we talk about them both. Not one without the other. Not one to the exclusion of the other. We do see an emphasis in the scripture on God's sovereignty and for good reason. It is a truth that is meant to shape us, shape our hearts, shape our thinking about God. So how ought we to think about God when it comes to what is accomplished in our own lives? Could I read you a little story from our friend Charles Spurgeon? Who accounts for this? He writes, When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. 
I can recall the very day and hour when first I received those truths in my soul, when they were, as John Bunyan said, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. Never happened here. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? Well, the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. Well, I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading scripture. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith. And so the doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine, I've not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. What God accomplished began with God. What God accomplished in your life began with him. There was a work of the Spirit before and behind all the responses, all the beautiful, wonderful, necessary responses, all the human agency that needed to take place, the Spirit of God was at work. If we're going to truly grasp the theology of Nehemiah, and we read the statement that the walls were built, our hearts should be filled with an amazement at what God has brought about long before we admire Nehemiah's leadership skills. If we're grasping the theology that's coming across in these two books, and we hear a simple statement, and the walls were built, the doors were hung, singers in place, what should ring true in our soul is a reflection all the way back to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord putting this on the heart of the king. The Lord stirring the heart of Cyrus, Nehemiah, Ezra. God's hand at work. Know what God has accomplished. Secondly, if you know what God has accomplished. Second point, maintain what God has given. Next step, second verse, we have Nehemiah appointing leaders. Now, Nehemiah himself had a role to play. He was the project guy, not the maintainer of the project, okay? He was the entrepreneur, not the manager. You're probably one of those two. They are rarely the same person, and you kind of know which category you fall into. You've met somebody who's the entrepreneur. You've met somebody who's the manager, and they're not the same person, are they? Two totally different sets of, of giftings. Nehemiah was the project guy. He made it happen. He was the visionary. He rallied everybody. He did the fundraising. He got convinced people to make the trip. He organized the work. He got the job done. Now the wall was done. It's time for somebody else 
take over and maintain it. He finds two men rightly qualified to govern the city, Hananiah and Hananiah, men who were described here as faithful and God-fearing. Two things that qualify us for the service of God in God's kingdom, faithful and having the fear of the Lord in our hearts. These men no doubt were gifted men. But whatever savvy managerial skills they may or may not have had, what stood out about them and what caused them to be selected for a position of leadership overseeing the people of God was their faithfulness and the fact that they feared the Lord. And this is unchanged for the people of God in the church to this day. Are two things that set apart leaders in Christ church two qualifications now we can look at elder qualifications deacon qualifications and and the list is 11 or 12 things in there and but you certainly can put as two headers everything could be summed up you faithful you have the fear of god in your heart you trustworthy is your yes, yes, your no, no? Constant, are you reliable? When you say something, is it believable? Because you speak the truth, are you faithful? God gives gifts to the church to lead, to oversee, to govern. And the scriptures lay out these qualifications, and these two words in Nehemiah chapter 7 summarize the qualifications for service in the body of Christ with the people of God. They're proven to be faithful, and they are proven to have the fear of the Lord in their hearts. Skills are often easily learned. Character is often slow and hard won. Many of you probably have experienced this in the workplace as you've interacted with others. Maybe you're in a position where you hire people and you have people working for you or you work alongside people. And you've realized this principle that if you have somebody of character that knows how to work, that is faithful, that is trustworthy, they tell the truth, they, they show up at work on time, they show up ready to work, they're faithful in accomplishing what they're asked to do at work, those are the qualities you end up looking for. And over time, if you've met enough people that don't have those qualities, you say, you know what? Your degrees, your experience, your skills, they're not helping. If I have a qualified person, I can teach them the trade. I can teach them the mechanics, what I really need. And what the church really needs is faithful and God fearing why why these two things because these are the two common traits that god would have for all his people so who are we going to put up front who's going to be the example who do we want all of the body to emulate to see and observe faithfulness and the fear of the lord and secondly 
These are the things God would have an outsider notice about the people of God. I'm sure we didn't wow you this afternoon with the polished service, the lights and the smoke and the extraordinary drummer. (laughs) Well, some churches have that. Praise God, that's good. Here's God's heart, God's desire. Here's what I want you to be known for. Here's what I want the world to see when they look at the people of God. I want them to look at the people of God and say, they're so dependable. They're so constant. They're faithful. You can always trust them when they say what they say. And they, they, they fear God. I don't even believe in God, but they fear someone. They fear something. They're, they're, so, they're so committed to doing what God says to them. Nothing seems to shake them off there. They're not intimidated. They're not persuaded. They, they, are, they are moved in their soul by someone I don't know or can't see. Nevertheless, they are so committed to obeying the Lord, serving the Lord, honoring the Lord, oftentimes at great cost to themselves. And therein is the testimony that God wants to build for his people to a watching world. Last point, guard, guard what God has given. Now, God gives gifts to maintain what God has given. God gives elders to the church to govern and to oversee and care for the flock. Third point, guard. Nehemiah says, listen, we got the walls up, got the gates hung, doors are closed. Now, listen, here's my instruction. There's still a lot of trouble out there. Don't open the gates until the sun is hot. And when you do close them later, make sure you're standing guard, bar the gates, and make sure everybody's on their guard watching the gates of the sea. Now, the walls were necessary, the gates were necessary, not to isolate, but to define, to identify, and to protect. Okay, this was not an isolation theology. They needed gates. Uh, They didn't build walls with no gates. They needed them to get out and for others to get in. They wanted that interaction. It was meant to be a welcome. Here's the gates. They wanted to open the gates. All who want to serve the Lord, welcome. Come on in. This is where we worship. The gates are open to you. But they also knew there was trouble. There were people who wanted to do them harm. And so they had to guard and protect the city. The reality of enemies, the reality of opposition was still very real, and Nehemiah was quite aware, so he gave the orders, monitor the gates carefully. Keep watch over the city. The completion of the walls was significant, but their troubles were not over. It's not the end of the book. There's several more chapters. There's much more to take place. So before we move on, know this. Now that the walls are complete, you have to guard. You have to guard what God has given. You have to protect what God has given. It was time for them to learn the lesson their forefathers did not, to protect the city, 
to protect their identity as the people of God. Hopefully, it was dawning on them. Friends, neighbors, if we don't guard the city, that's the very thing that got us into this mess to begin with. The fact that we didn't keep watch is why we walked into a pile of rubble with no city and no temple. It's why we were living in Babylon and Persia for 70 years because we didn't keep watch over the city, over our identity. We were unprotected. The need to be watchful. This is a command in the New Testament. Often I feel overlooked. I've been reading and studying about this concept of watchfulness recently, and it's, it's surprising, me, surprising me how many times it's stated in the New Testament and how many times I would just read past it and not think much about it. It's almost like it's the missing spiritual discipline. It's the one we rarely talk about. It doesn't usually get included in the books on spiritual disciplines. And yet the New Testament over and over, and Jesus in particular, cautioning us with concern, watch and pray. Watch, guard, protect. Pay close attention. Take heed. Give earnest heed to these things. Stay awake. Be on high alert over and over. Thomas Brooks wrote, watchfulness includes a waking, a rousing up of the soul. It is a continual, careful observing of our hearts and ways in all the turnings of our lives that we still keep close to God and his word. That's the essence of what we're talking about when it means to watch and to be careful over your own soul. Protect what God has given. What God has accomplished in your life, you and I are now called to guard it to protect it, to keep it safe. Why? Because the gift is so fragile? Because it requires our effort to make it significant? Of course not. No, the promises of God tell us that the work of God's grace and the deposit of the Spirit in us gives us the most resilient and most enduring of gifts. They last forever. The work that God has begun in you will last forever. But that is somewhat the point. The great work of grace that God accomplishes in our hearts and lives is proven to be great in the fact that they're given to us in the midst of powerful enemies. What God accomplishes fills and captures us in such a way that we treasure it above all else. And so when we are told by the giver to guard the gifts of grace in our hearts, we are compelled to do so, and in doing so, we honor the giver and prove the gift to be all that it was promised to be. There's nothing wrong with the gift, but when we obey the Lord and guard the gift, we prove the value of the gift, and we prove the effectiveness of the gift, and we honor the giver of the gift because we take great care to treasure it and to keep it 
and to not let it get lost and not let it corrupt. When you've been giving something valuable, you honor the giver by treasuring it and keeping it safe. Your desire to protect it and keep it is an expression of love and devotion toward the giver himself. So, be watchful. And being watchful actually deepens our communion with the Lord. Okay, let me ask you a question. What happens in a friendship, in a relationship, in a marriage, when it's neglected? When you don't treasure it, it drifts. It diminishes. In other words, your actions of neglect, your unwillingness to guard, protect, treasure that friendship, you neglect it. And then the friendship begins to diminish and become less and less and less. It communicates that your heart does not treasure or value that relationship. What happens next is that the joy and the vitality gets drained out of the relationship until it looks less and less like it was meant to be. And then we have the hap- unhappy story of the couple parting ways. It's not really a marriage because it drifted. Drifted into something it was never meant to be. So be watchful. Watchful against what? Who's the enemy? This is very important because if we pick the wrong enemy, we're going to get ourselves in a lot of trouble. But the New Testament tells us clearly about our enemies. Nothing can be more difficult, nothing can be more confusing than to be in a war and to either not know who's your friend or who's your enemy. So the scriptures help us and make it clear. The world, the flesh, and the devil are the three enemies that the scriptures tell us. These are the forces at work against you. These are the forces at work that would have you neglect the treasure of what God has accomplished in your life, would have your heart grow cold towards what God has done, the world. Now, the use of the word world in the New Testament has a few different meanings, depending on the context. And in this context, the world here refers to all of humanity in a state of rebellion against God. While it is visible people, it is more like the spirit of the age, if you will, a kind of force at work in humanity apart from God. It's everything that is in rebellion and contrary to God and his kingdom is sometimes referred to as the kingdom of man. So therefore, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 John writes to us, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Okay, now you understand different definitions of world. So this is not in contradiction to John 3.16, for God so loved the world loves the population of the world, loves the people of the world, the human beings. God's heart is for them. But in another context, he's talking about the world, the world that has rebelled against God and is fixed and set 
opposed to God, that world we need to learn to identify and know and be on our guard against. James repeats this and says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship here makes an enemy of you and God. Secondly, the flesh. The flesh is a, is a term, again, in the New Testament that is referring to remaining indwelling sin in our hearts. While we are made new in Christ and we have a new identity, we are made new, we are a new creation, there remains in our hearts indwelling sin. Okay, Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Maybe you remember Paul going on and on in Romans chapter 7. Ah, there's things I want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Oh, woe is me. It's confusing. It's difficult. Why? Because there's two things going on. Your new heart in Christ desires what is good and what is right. Remaining indwelling sin still is present and still pulls and sometimes influences us to do. And, and then when we do, then we say, ah, but I didn't want to do that, but I did that. Ah, it's like there's a war going on. There's a fight going on. Those, Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. How do we win that battle? Oh, you guard, you protect what God has accomplished, what God has done. You watch carefully. Your eyes are open. You're alert. You're awake. You're attentive. Third enemy, the devil. Revelation 12.9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. There is a devil. Peter tells us very clearly, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resist him firm in your faith. You can, the image is probably already in your mind. That, that crouching lion, still as can be, quiet, hidden in the bushes, patient, beyond imagination, waiting, waiting to pounce, waiting for the right moment, finding just the right moment when you are unsuspecting, unguarded, not watching, not awake, drifting off to sleep, and he's ready to pounce, ready to devour. These are the enemies that exist. If you are in Christ, these three are your enemies and they are active. They are present and they are a force to be reckoned with. But we are promised the help we need to overcome. But we're also told to watch. Cannot read that and assume, oh, it will all be fine. It doesn't matter what I do. That is not the usefulness of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. When clearly God is encouraging us, imploring us over and over, be watchful, be diligent. 
Okay, we'll close. Worship team, you can make your way on up. Conclusion, what God accomplishes, we must maintain and guard. I'm not suggesting that we should do this alone. If you, if you heard that statement and, and you bristled a little bit, are you, are you saying this is all human effort? And No, that is not what I'm implying. I am specifically insisting it does involve human agency. You have to participate. But this is not something that we do in our own strength. The point is that we're being called to do these things, and in the doing, we prove the power of God's grace. Friends, we are saved by grace. And we are sanctified by grace. And we will endure by grace to the end. But the commands of God let us know that while the power belongs to the Lord, these are things you and I are called to engage in and participate in. The commands and the promises of God work together hand in hand. Let me close with a quote from William Gurnall. Wrote a two-volume set of the Christian in complete armor. He writes this. You should find great strength and encouragement in the knowledge that your commission is divine. God himself underwrites your battle and has appointed his own son, the captain of your salvation. He will lead you on to the field with courage and bring you off with honor. He lived and died for you. He will live and die with you. His mercy and tenderness to his soldiers is unmatched. Historians tell us Trajan tore his own clothes to bind up his soldiers' wounds. The Bible tells us that Christ poured out his very blood to balm, uh, his balm to heal his saints' wounds. His flesh was torn to bind them up. The Lord is with you. The captain of our salvation is there. The promises of God are powerful and with you. So, therefore, watch. Watch, guard, protect. The Lord is with you. He will see you through to the end. So give him your wakefulness, your watchfulness. And we'll finish this journey and be the people of God to the end. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand and sing, O oh, Church.